It's a new year and a new decade. A century ago, the 1920s brought momentous changes. In the U.S., women got the vote, new technologies and colonialism deepened global integration and fueled economic expansion in rich countries that gave the decade its name, the Roaring Twenties. And then at the end of the decade, there was economic collapse, a depression, and a slide towards war. What will the 21st century's next decade bring? A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development, and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. We have a lot to talk about to kick off the season. We're fortunate to have two of the most thoughtful and pragmatic leaders in the development community, Carolyn Miles and Masood Ahmed. Carolyn has led Save the Children U.S. as its CEO for the last nine years, and you've been at Save for how long, Carolyn? 22 years. For 22 years. One of the most effective international development organizations in the world. So you bring a very pragmatic perspective to this conversation. And Masood is president of the Center for Global Development, which is one of the leading think tanks in the world looking at development issues. So you bring a large-scale perspective that encompasses the academic, the theories of change, and also the practice of change. Carolyn, Masood, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. So to kick off the decade for our fourth season of a Deeper Look podcast, we're going to take a deeper look at the trends, the ideas, and forces that leaders in the development community expect to shape human development efforts over the next 10 years. Before I open up the conversation, I want to just take a moment to take stock of where we are as we enter the 2020s. There's a lot of things to celebrate. Extreme poverty has dropped to only 10% of the world population. More than a billion people have lifted themselves out of poverty in the last 25 years. Child deaths have been nearly cut in half since 2000, in part due to great strides in controlling infectious diseases, especially malaria and waterborne diseases. Nearly nine out of 10 people have access to electricity and more than five billion people have mobile devices, so people are more and more connected, including 45% of populations in emerging economies. And income inequality, as measured by Gini coefficients, so looking just at the income side, has been reduced in the majority of countries. So there's been real progress in the last 20 years, since the turn of the century. There's also looming clouds on the horizon. There are two mega issues I see hanging over us. One is climate change, and the other is conflict and migration, where we have more people who are forcibly displaced than at any time before in human history. There's also a variety of development challenges that we still face. There's a youth bulge in developing countries, so youth unemployment is a giant issue that we have to confront. There's still over 100 million kids who are out of school. We see an increase in number of kids out of school because of displacement, so I'm very concerned about education in emergencies. While we've made progress on many fronts, it's clear that there are pressing human development challenges still facing us. Masood and Carolyn, what do you see as the main drivers that will influence how we as a development community respond in the coming decade? 
All right. Well, Patrick, I think you framed the challenges very nicely, and and I think it is it is good to start with the achievements because I mean, it's just worth remembering that the last seventy five years have seen more progress in the condition of most humans than the previous 2,000 years. So we have seen unprecedented progress. The way we improved the lives of people was through a generalized improvement in economic prosperity. So it's a rising tide has lifted many, many boats. And, and you know, we, you gave the numbers uh, in probably not unreasonable to assume that in 15 years' time, the life expectancy of... Uh, of people of the child mortality rates around the world will be about the same as they were in the United States uh, 30 years ago. And that's mm-hmm. really quite staggering if you think about it. But the problems we now face, to my mind, fall into two broad categories. You know, one category is that we're discovering that while a rising tide lifts most boats, some boats are perched in places where the tide doesn't get to them. And we now need to move away from thinking about a general approach to improving living standards to taking these specific problems, whether as marginalized groups that live in the midst of improved conditions, whether it's children, whether it's women in some societies, whether it's refugees, whether it's conflict countries. And I think each of these needs a different kind of solution than the sort of generalized approach we had. And the second big set of problems, I think, are problems that are not about individual countries or communities, but those that connect us across. And climate being the most obvious one, mm-hmm. but biodiversity, uh, pandemic response. And I think our system for addressing these problems is far less developed than our approaches, our institutions, our mechanisms for trying to deal with problems that are more contained within individual countries. I think those are two big sets of challenges that I I feel we have to get our heads around moving forward. So, Masood, on one hand, I hear you saying that the generalized approach has sort of reached its limits of effectiveness, and we now have to have even more contextualized, more customized approaches to dealing with specific human development challenges. But then, on the other hand, you're saying, and we need to retool our systems to be able to do that, which is a kind of a generalized approach. So there's systems on one hand, and there's customization on the other. Carolyn, what do you think? I agree with a lot of what Masood said. I would also start with the progress piece. You know, having been at Save the Children for more than 20 years, I've actually been able to see that progress very starkly during that time. And so when I think about a country like Ethiopia, where I've been to many times over that 20 years, and I think about the work that we were doing in Ethiopia 20 years ago, it was about child survival. It was about just getting kids to their fifth birthday. So that work now, you know, there are 34,000 community health workers in Ethiopia, all deployed by the Ethiopian Minister of Health, right? We don't have to do that work anymore. Now, when I was just back there in the spring, we're working on youth employment. Mm -hmm. So kind of the other end of a child's life, Right. right? So that progress is very real. It's very specific. But I do think the difference between those that are the furthest left behind, 
So when I was on that trip, I also visited internally displaced people inside of Ethiopia who were displaced because of conflict. Mm -hmm. And they were living in complete abject poverty with no access to anything, no access to education, no access to food, no access to health care. At the same time that you have progress inside a country, you have that growing disparity for those that are most left behind. Right. And I think that is going to take both very specific applications of solutions at the country level, which countries have to take on themselves. So in the case of Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government has to decide that we're going to be able to do something about that. And we also have to work on these issues of conflict globally. To me, when I look at our work at Save the Children, that issue of conflict is the one that is the hardest to really move the needle on for the families we work with right now. Well, and that's where places where the tide is not rising, it's predominantly in conflict-affected countries. Yeah, and you know, so the conflict-affected countries is a good example of the need for specialized approaches that challenges our existing systems. For example, we used to think about a stream of people and institutions that worked on development. World Bank, regional development banks, for example. And then you had a stream of institutions you'd set up to work on humanitarian response to deal with refugees coming out of conflict. Mm-hmm. And then you have a group of people who are, say, peacekeepers in the UN or, or, or regional peacekeeping who are supposed to work on conflict, the end of it. And we used to think of these three things as sort of coexisting but not connected. What we're now discovering is that the average refugee that is displaced by a conflict is likely to be a refugee for over a decade, for some of them for 21 years. The needs you have are not 21 years of one-year interventions designed to give you food, shelter, and uh, And that leave you dependent on external forces. The the old design was, look, you're a refugee. You're probably only going to be here for a short time. Then you're going to go back. In the meantime, the international system was designed to give you food, shelter, and and clothing and keep you safe. Well, now you have to think about schooling. So Carolyn just said, look, these kids need to go to school. You have to think about... How are they going to earn their living during that period? How are you going to integrate them into the local community? Are they going to have the right to work? And so a big issue right now would look at all the refugees that have been in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, coming out of Syria, the Rohingya in Bangladesh, is how do you give them the right and the abilities, empower them to be able to become more productive members of the communities in which they're going to be for a decade or two decades. And what does that challenge us? Because now you need to bring in the development institutions, the humanitarian institutions, and the conflict management people, the peacekeepers, to start talking inside the same room and having a common approach that has the person they're trying to help at the center rather than all working according to their own rules. That's been a challenge. I think we've made quite a lot of progress between the development and humanitarian folk in the last decade or so, but I think we still have some ways to go to integrate the peacekeeping side into it. It's something that means everybody has to step out of their comfort zone, and and that's always tough. Well, that would be an example of systems change. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say that when you think about that issue 
in light of the life of a child, for example, the system is not working for that child. So 2% of humanitarian spending is on education. Yet these are children who are spending their entire childhood as a refugee or a displaced person. person. If you don't have more emphasis on getting back to education, getting back to livelihoods, getting back to those things, that whole generation of kids is never going to get those mm -hmm. opportunities. So the way we think about it and the way we fund it and what we fund inside of it, it's completely different Absolutely. now. Yeah, well, you've hit on one of my own priorities, which is to see education elevated as a key priority for displaced people, whether refugees or right. internally displaced, because it's not one of the key priorities. It's a secondary priority. And now, given the conditions that you cited, Masood, people spend, if not their whole lives, their whole youth displaced. So education needs to be a part of that. But it also, that kind of systems change challenges our notions of the nation state or of nationalism. How do you incorporate people who have come into your geography into society in a way that they do have opportunities for work, for livelihoods, for education, but they have opportunity and they're not just dependent. It seems to me that's what we haven't been able to solve. And in fact, if you look at the kind of rise of nationalism or nativism, the pendulum may be going in the wrong direction. Have you given thought to that? I want to divide it into two different points. One is, if you take a country like Bangladesh, and you have 700,000 million Rohingya community come in. And if you start having a conversation about how they're going to get access to livelihoods at a time when the community of Bangladeshis within which they have been welcomed are themselves not able to access these things, you're going to create tension unless you think of the whole of that community as part of the solution. And it's, it's politically challenging for countries to even start by accepting that these people will be here for a decade. Accepting reality sometimes, or what is likely to be reality, is harder. That's a different sort of nationalism, which we see probably more in rich countries today, more and more, which is about challenging the whole notion of why and how much we should be involved in supporting improved living standards elsewhere when many communities living in our own countries here in the United States or in Europe feel that they need help and they've been left behind in some ways by the process of technological change, by globalization, and what we don't talk about, by our own policies. So they are not as universally behind a commitment to help the rest of the world in the same way. Carolyn, what do you think? What is the systems change that is going to allow for displaced people to have more control over their own destinies? Masood mentioned it. I think it starts with getting real about what's likely to happen for these populations. And, you know, Bangladesh is a great example. There seems to just be this kind of suspend, you know, belief that exactly. people will be there for the long term. And they will be there for the long term because they don't have anywhere else to go. Right. So it starts with that. And then I think it is a combination of both a national program, but it's got to be supported by the international community. Bangladesh can't be expected to support 700,000 people. Right. I mean, in they're those doing a lot already. Places. Yeah. Yes. So I think you have to get people to realize that this is what's going to happen. I guess the other thing, we need to go back to the idea that actually countries are built on the diversity of the people that come there. 
And it always astounds me when we talk about the United States. This is a country that's built on immigrants. Mm -hmm. It's built on people who came to this country and built this country. And most of us, if you go back just a couple generations, we can point to where we came from. But yet we seem to have forgotten that and think that that's somehow a bad thing. And I think you have to get back to the idea that that's what builds nations and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. We've gotten ourselves tangled up in this idea that no, keeping people out is the right thing, letting people in is the wrong thing, when history shows us that that's completely the opposite. Right, uh, it certainly is a point of view that is shaping politics in our country and in Europe and also in other parts mm -hmm. of the world. So one of the things I'm taking away from where the conversation has gone is that migration and displacement are two of the big trends uh, that you see shaping our future and that we as uh, organizations that work on human development challenges, that those are two of the challenges we'll be confronting in the 2020s. Masood, you're an economist, and in terms of migration, in affluent countries, they're increasingly having problems with labor shortages. Can you foresee, say, over the next 10 years, a situation where this antipathy towards migrants, which is fueled often by populist leaders as a way of, of um, gaining political power, gets switched because of the economic forces that would drive a society to recognize that it needs migrants in order to remain competitive and to maintain their living standards? If you look at Europe and Africa. Here's Europe where population is aging, and even with automation, you know, we can't assume robots are going to come and do a lot of the jobs that we need people for today, but many of the jobs we need tomorrow, whether it's healthcare workers or, or whether it's other service providers, it's going to be very hard to get done through automation. So Europe, population's aging, workforce is getting smaller, and we need more people doing these kinds of jobs. And Africa, only part of the world where the number of young people is going to grow over the next uh, 30 years. So it's hard to imagine by the end of the century, four out of 10 people in the world will come and live in Africa. You know, the population of Africa is going to double and double again. 800 million young people are going to be there looking for jobs. Most of them will find jobs within Africa. They'll find some livelihood. But Tens of millions will migrate, mostly within Africa, but again, few million are going to migrate to Europe where there's going to be jobs. Well, so you could also think of that as a giant talent I, pool. Look, I think there is no alternative but to think about this as how do we equip those young people to be productive wherever they are? And I think we have to recognize that labor mobility, temporary, permanent, is going to be part of the future. The reason why I feel many populations are worried about migrations in rich countries is partly just the worry of speed of change, but also a sense of not having control over their own borders. What was it that got a lot of people worked up about migration in the UK that was one of the factors behind Brexit? What was it about the picture in Europe that got the Italians, many of them worried about it? It was the sense that they could no longer control their own borders. And I think it's very important to combine 
an orderly management of migration, the ability to manage it and give people confidence and comfort that what is being done is being done in an orderly way. And that is actually in the interest both of the communities to which the people come and the people that are coming. And I think when you can achieve that, you see more progress. And there are some countries that are doing better at it than, than others. You know, if you look at Australia, if you look at Canada, they have quite high migration inflows even as having quite tough border control policy. But it's not just control of borders. There's an issue of national identity. And I think it comes back to the point you were making, Carolyn, about conceiving diversity, a strength of national identity, and being able to incorporate diverse elements, diverse cultural aspects, into a society. So would you say that that issue of national identity will be one of the big challenges we face in the 2020s? I think it will in relation to this issue of migration and displacement. But I think the other issue, maybe just turning a little bit to a second issue that you mentioned earlier, which is climate. And sometimes these things go together, right? So sometimes migration and displacement is forced by climate change, right? right? And particularly to those that are living in the poorest areas. But I think there's also this other element of climate change that's going to really impact very, very vulnerable populations around the world. They may not leave those places. They may not be displaced from those places, but there's going to be tremendous impact. And the piece of this that's also interesting to think about is, you know, we as Save the Children have been doing a lot of thinking about young people. Obviously, they're very seized by this issue of climate change. What could that become? Is there a whole revolution around young people, and how is that going to drive change? Right. And will that create whole new economies mm -hmm. that we're not even thinking of right now? Yep. I'm pretty sure that in 10 years' time, you will find that the structure of economies, of the way we go about doing business in many, many places is going to be different because of the response to climate. I think we're not going to be able to ignore it. And, and there are two areas of why I feel climate is getting so much more likely to become a central issue. One is the issue of young people. You see young people around the world actually getting focused on it because it's going to be their world. their world. You know, they're the one who are going to feel the impact of it. And the second thing is that in the last year or two, you begin to see the people who work in the financial sector begin to get focused on climate. So the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, has been spearheading a movement that has now brought in many central banks around the world to insist that banks start accounting for the risk that comes from climate change in the portfolios mm. they have. If you've got a lot of assets, but these assets are going to be only worth two-thirds of what they are if you account for what might happen from climate change to those buildings or industries or whatever those assets happen to be, well, you're certainly going to find a lot of people's behavior out of self-interest is going to start changing. So I think in 10 years' time, we'll, we'll see the demand for it. And on the supply side, you're going to find that a lot of technological solutions are going to start coming that will make it easier. You see the technology driving prices down, making things affordable that weren't affordable before. So... We have displacement, we've identified migration and labor mobility, climate change, and climate change is a phenomenon that is going to force a change in the structure of economy and probably create both disruption but also opportunity. 
There's another trend that gets a lot of rhetoric, and that's around a focus on women and girls and gender equality. How do you see that playing out in the 2020s? I mean, for us in our sector and as Save the Children, we think it's super important. Again, when I look at the disparity between children who have opportunities and those that don't, there's a couple of groups of children. There's disabled children, Mm -hmm. there's ethnic minorities, there's girls, and then in some countries there's other specific groups. But girls are almost always at the bottom of the list. And so for us, it's all about how do you reach the most deprived and left behind children. And in almost all the countries we look at, girls are a part of that, a big part of that group. So we're starting to look at not just programs for girls, more girls in education or getting girls to make sure they have access to health care and ending early marriage and all those things. But how do you actually change behavior? How do you actually change the norms? Behavior of families? Families. Mm-hmm. How do you change how girls get treated? Social norms. Social norms. And because that is, and we all do it. We all, you know, those of us who have children, we do it ourselves. But you see it in every society and all the travels that I've Mm -hmm. done and all the mothers and children that I've met and fathers that I've met. It's there. It's there all the time. It starts with those social norms. And that's something that Save the Children is very much focused on in the coming years is how do we get that to be an equal playing field? I couldn't agree more. I think the evidence now is in and there's more and more studies that are showing that even where you try to equalize access to education outcomes for girls and women lag behind those for men and a lot of it is driven by societal norms societal norms are harder to change and there's now some very interesting work being done both at the sort of theoretical level as well as field work trying to see if there are ways in which you can shift norms it starts right from the beginning and it continues throughout your life i do worry that you see a little bit of backtracking i think the ability to control their own decisions in terms of marriage in terms of fertility in terms of first birth has a huge consequence. I think new digital technology is making some things easier, like financial inclusion for women. Previously, if you had to give money that belonged to a woman, but you went through the family, you find that her access to money that is rightfully hers actually is only partial. Mm -hmm. The husband or, or the men in the family control most of it. Now, through mobile banking, telephone banking, if the money goes directly into the woman's account through her telephone, she's able to retain more control of it. We need to figure out ways in which we can use some of the new digital technologies to accelerate the pace for empowerment of women. I was wondering how long it would take us to get to technology as one of the forces (laughs) that will shape the 2020s. So that's a good example of a positive. Carolyn, how do you see technology as a force for addressing human development needs? Is it going to create them or is it going to help us address them? Uh, Well, I guess it can do both, (laughs) I think. But we're looking at it certainly as addressing them to a great extent. I mean, it's all mobile, right? The technology that we're using out in the field is all mobile. But to go from basically zero 20 years ago to kind of now full smartphones in many of the places where we work and to be able to use that technology to do all sorts of things, mostly, I think, to empower people on the ground who are there, who can use the data 
in a much bigger way. I'm thinking of community health workers who can now do the diagnosis. You know, we have a lung ultrasound that plugs into a cell phone, a smartphone that the community health worker can do to diagnose pneumonia. Right. right? The cell phone device that could diagnose cervical cancer using AI, so a nurse in a, in a rural health facility could use this. There's an AI application that can diagnose the images of the cervix yeah. at a higher level of accuracy than having a well-trained doctor do it. Yep, yep. And in those places where you would never have a well-trained exactly. doctor anyway. Exactly, exactly. You just leapfrog. So, so clearly the potential from technology is enormous. There are many, many fascinating things that you can do with it that you're able to do today. I would just say two things. One is the modern toilet was invented 300 years ago. Three billion people today don't have access to it. So having the technology is no guarantee that it's gonna be used and will get to the people who need it. The digital technologies make it maybe easier to do that because some of them you can reach out in different ways, but we do need to find these holistic solutions for it. I see three dimensions, it's interesting. One is technology as a means to leapfrog and raise standards of living in terms of improved health care, use of mobile money, or even in terms of equality. So the leapfrogging dimension. Then second, your point, Masood, which I hear fewer people talk about, which is, hey, there are a lot of technologies that we have that can solve the human development problems that we see, we're just not using them or they're just not accessible to the people who need them. And what are the systems or the means that will make simple technologies accessible? Then the third dimension, which you haven't raised, but which I'll mention, is technology as a malign force. You know, it's not only a beneficial actor and it can be used not as a neutral force but as a force promoting extreme political views for example or anti-immigrant views so when you think of those three dimensions where do you come out in terms of thinking of the next 10 years are you a techno optimist or a techno pessimist well, I, I'm definitely a techno-optimist. You know, technology for bad is, is something we have to think about. But I would say the good far outweighs the bad. Look, the history of humanity is essentially a history of improvements in the way in which we live that come from technological upgrading. Human living standards are simply a product of technological upgrading that has happened over the previous few hundred years. So there's no question that with more technology, we'll be able to do better. But there are two things to remember in my mind which make me a little bit cautious. One is that historically, whenever there have been periods of concentrated technological change, there have also been periods of social and political disruption. So if the pace of technological change picks up here or in developing countries, we just need to be cognizant of that fact. And the second thing that I worry about is that the new kind of technology, which is AI and digital technology and how it's used, for, whether it's for political purposes, whether it's for surveillance purposes, whether it's for introducing new ways of thinking about who has access to new kinds of genetic improvements and, and whether rich and poor will have the same kinds of access and how we'll make those choices. I think these are new questions that many societies have to grapple with, but we need to recognize that these are 
real problems and we need to find democratic, at least participatory solutions that societies have to make those choices. I don't think there is a conversation going on around these things. And I think this will come back and bite us unless we have that conversation. Right. Is social enterprise another one of the trends that you see driving the way we address human development changes? I, I in think the it's a huge change. I think the old system of we go and get grants or contributions and we do a project and a program and then we try to get some more and we try to do it again. And rather than a business that provides those services that makes enough money from those services to keep that sustainable and to give investment back to the investors, you know, capital right. back to the investors, that to me is the model. And the question is, how do we do more of that? And there's a lot more of it going on today than there ever has been. But to me, that's the big change that, that needs to happen. This is a terrific conversation. We've identified six big trends that I'm gonna summarize, but before I do that, let me just ask you, is there one other big trend or, or force that you see shaping human development in the 2020s? I see one other force, which is international competition, political competition. I think that over the last 30 years, the big powers of the world in some ways have been working in a common global system. And increasingly, China and the role of China in the international system as a lender in Africa, as it's now the biggest provider of development finance to most countries in Africa, as an alternative quote-unquote model of development is going to pose a challenge which the Western countries are still struggling to figure out how best to adapt to. And I think that will impact the way we think about development in ways that we haven't yet fully internalized. And I would say that we touched on it in a couple of areas. We touched on it on climate and on employment, but the power of youth and of young people. I think that's the other thing that is really going to obviously shape how development goes, but in a bigger way because you have so much more information flowing now and young people are the ones who are the best at getting that information, I think that's really going to drive things in a different way over the next decade or two. This conversation shows just how compelling thinking about the shape of things to come in human development is. And you have identified major trends and forces that you see shaping our world in the future. And I agree with you, displacement is one migration and labor mobility, climate change, gender equality and the social norms around gender, technology, both from a leapfrogging perspective and from a disruption perspective, social enterprise, so moving away from a kind of grant-funded mentality of thinking how do you address social problems to one that's fueled by private finance and by domestic resources, international political competition, so up at a global scale, the breakdown of the rules-based system, international order that we've had since the mid-1940s, and then the power of youth, in particular an information-enabled 
youth, unlike any time before in our history. So those are great trends that we're going to unpack during the course of this season as we take a deeper look at the shape of things to come in human development. Before I let you go, I have one question for both of you. Looking forward to the 2020s, do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist? in terms of the outcomes we're going to see with respect to addressing human development challenges? Well, I'm always an optimist. Um, I don't think you can do this work and not be an optimist. But I, I am optimistic because I've seen so much progress in the last two decades, and I have no doubt that we can actually make even faster progress given where we are today and where we can go. It's, it's inevitable Thanks. To me. Yeah. Look, I think that the human condition has just turned out to be extraordinarily resilient. People are very resilient and they make progress and they find ways to be satisfied, fulfilled and happy in the most difficult of circumstances. So I think if you get exposed to this, you cannot but be an optimist about how people will make progress in the next decade also. To be able to achieve that, I think we have to be more upfront about recognizing the challenges and move away from an aspirational approach to development in some ways to a realistic approach where we start looking at the constraints and the barriers that hold people back and, and being much more clear-eyed about how we help and remove those barriers. So I hear cautious optimism. I'm also going to come down on the side of an optimistic outlook on the 2020s. And the thing that makes me most optimistic was your last point, Carolyn, about the power of youth. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that there is a huge talent pool that is going to change our world and bring new energy into confronting the human development challenges that the 2020s bring in ways that we can't even imagine right now. Carolyn. Masood, thank you for a great discussion to kick off this season with this new theme around the shape of things to come in the 2020s. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to hear what you see as the trends and the forces that are going to shape human development during the 2020s. Share your comments and share this episode with your colleagues and your communities. Tune in next month for another discussion where we'll take a deeper look into some of the trends and forces we've been discussing today.